Hey guys, welcome to the What I Love About Men podcast. I'm your host, Steph Ganowski. After having multiple negative experiences with men, I started to believe all men were toxic. That is, until a few male strangers challenged my belief completely. This made me realize that a major problem with men in relationships stems from the fact that most men don't really love themselves or pay enough attention to their own strengths. I want to change that. Now I'm on a mission to help men thrive mentally, emotionally, physically, and sexually in their relationships with themselves and with women. So stay tuned and see how my passion can help you as a man. Hey, hey, hey. Welcome back to the What I Love About Men podcast. Today's episode is really cool, guys, because I have on a guest talking about food and how to eat like a human again. And this is Dr. Bill's main mission is to teach people how to eat like a human again. And that in itself really spoke to me because if you just look around, what are we eating the majority of the time? (laughs) Things that have a crazy shelf life that can just live on forever, aren't fresh, aren't packed with nutrients, are more just... Our our culture has made food more about calories and just looking good and eating a certain amount of calories versus actually nourishing ourselves and paying attention to nutrient-dense foods. So I thought that was really important because if you think about it, how can we function properly in life as an overall human if we're not fueling our bodies with the proper nutrients? And Dr. Bill really opened my eyes, and I'm sure he'll open yours as well, to food in general and the foods that have the most nutrients versus the foods that are really hurting us and maybe even bringing up foods that you thought were bad that are actually amazing for you. So we cover a lot in this episode. It's really interesting. Dr. Bill knows his shit and he's super confident and high energy and passionate. You could tell he's super passionate about what he does. So this is just going to be a really informative, educational episode around food and the history of food. And it's just gonna, it's just gonna rock your socks, okay? I never said that, but it's going to do that. So let's introduce Dr. Bill. Dr. Bill Schindler is the founder and director of the Eastern Shore Food Lab, an associate professor of anthropology and archaeology at Washington College in Chestertown, Maryland, and the co-star of the National Geographic series, The Great Human Race, Curiosity Streams, The Modern Stone Age Family, and Wired Magazine's Basic Instinct. He is a food archaeologist, primitive technologist, and chef, and travels the world with his family documenting traditional foodways. He is on a mission to transform our diet and health by simply showing us what it means to eat like a human again. Hey, Belle, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm so excited to interview you. I love your energy. I love your passion uh, for food, and I can't wait for this interview. Thank you. <laughs> Stephanie, I'm thrilled to be here. I can't wait to get started. All right, let's start with, let's start with your story. I would love to know, like, what got you to this place of, you know, being a chef and especially having that caveman mentality in your cooking. Um, what is, how, where did this all start? <laughs> well, I suppose it starts really when I was a kid. I, I've always had, for the majority of my life, uh, a very unhealthy relationship with food. I was an overweight kid, sort of dumpy, um, got made fun of regularly. There was one year of my life, I know this sounds silly, but I got beat up, I think, literally every day on the playground at schools, like fifth or sixth grade. And I didn't see food as something that nourished me. I saw food as something that that made me fat or made other kids make fun of me. Uh, Then later on, um, I found sports. I became an athlete. 
I ended up wrestling Division One for Ohio State and, believe it or not, Division Three for the College of New Jersey. And even though the weight, because I was working out, you know, so incredibly hard for you know as a Division One athlete, that the weight just came off, and I looked from the outside healthy. You know, the, the what you would consider like a human health. You know, I was there. I was muscular. I was lean. Um, I wasn't healthy. I, I still didn't feel healthy, uh, and I still, most importantly, didn't have that healthy relationship with food. Food still wasn't something that nourished me. Food was something I was scared of and prevented me from making weight. And then when I um, stopped wrestling, all the weight came back on and I started suffering from, you know, incredible um, uh, metabolic syndrome and, you know, irritable bowel syndrome and terrible. I had, I had restless leg syndrome. My skin wasn't good. I just felt like that little kid again that was getting beat up. And this my entirety of my life, I was asking that question, you know, what should I eat? Like, I just wanted somebody to tell me what I should eat so I could feel and look the way that I should feel and look. And nobody could answer it. I was going to doctors to nutritionists and dietitians and listening to my coaches and listening to parents. And none of it made sense. I tried diet after diet. None of it made sense until I finally realized that I was asking the wrong question all along the question, and we can dive into this, I'm sure, much deeper in a little while, but the question that all of us are asking that are trying to lose weight or get healthy is, you know, what we should eat. What should we eat? Um, diets are built on that information. Magazine articles, are, uh, you know, are built on trying to answer that question. Doctors and nutritionists answer that question. It's the wrong question. There is no other animal on the planet that hires nutritionists to tell them how to eat. But other than our pets, which we screw up because we feed them people food, um, other than our domesticated animals, other animals are healthy. They just eat incredibly healthy, natural diets are lean and muscular and do the things that those animals are supposed to do. But we've screwed it up somehow. We keep asking this question. And what I've realized uh, after I became an archaeologist and an anthropologist and um, uh, started working with indigenous and traditional groups around the world and looking at how we've eaten through time is that that is a question that our ancestors weren't asking. That is a question that we should not really be focused on today. The question that we should ask, and this is going to sound really strange for a minute, and I'm happy to unpack this over the next, um, next hour, is the question we should be asking is, how should we eat? Because, and this is what I call eating like a human, uh, the difference between humans and all other animals is that uh, we have an incredibly inefficient digestive tract. Like we really have one of the least efficient digestive tracts of any animal on the planet, but we use the food that we eat to fuel these incredibly large bodies and incredibly nutrient expensive brains. So what we've done over time is we have figured out ways of creating technologies, and we've done this for millions of years, to take resources that we have absolutely no business eating and transform them into their safest and most nourishing forms possible. And because our ancestors have been doing this for hundreds of thousands of years and millions of years, we have built bodies on diets that we have absolutely no business eating, but required to fuel these bodies that we're now you know, sort of inhabiting. So when I realized that I should stop counting calories and stepping on scales and figuring out every gram of fat or carbohydrates or whatever that I'm eating, and just really focus on approaching my diet the way we've approached diets as modern day humans for 300,000 years or as humans in general for millions of years, everything changed. Like I have encountered, I have, I'm 47 years old now and I'm in better shape now than I was as a division one athlete at Ohio State. I feel better. I look better. 
I, I, I get up in the morning. I'll say that. What's that? <laughs> you don't look 47. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. A little gray. I can't do it. Diet doesn't help with that at all. But other, but I, I, I haven't stepped on the scale in at least seven years. I haven't counted a calorie in, in, you know, probably longer than that. And it really is, you know, not only have I regained, or I don't know if I even regained, I think I've gained health that I've never had before. But most importantly, uh, in addition to that, is I've been able to connect with the world around me in some really special ways. And I mean, and this is going to sound hokey for a minute, but bear with me. I mean, everything from my, my past, you know, our ancestors, from my environment, where my food comes from, farmers, local food producers, community, and my family, and most importantly, with myself in ways that I never could have imagined. Wow. Wow, that's an incredible story. And I want to go back to how you said our digestive systems are inefficient. Is that what you said? Absolutely. Yes. Does that come through evolution? Like, did that happen due to what we've been eating? Like, as we've been eating shittier and shittier throughout the years? (laughs) It's actually, yes, it's (laughs) sure, but it's actually the opposite. So um, here's the, I'll give you the quick prehistoric sort of history lesson here. Um, About five to seven million years ago, our ancestors first stood upright and started walking around on two legs. And at that time, we were, we were fairly small. We were about, full-grown adults were about three and a half feet tall, uh, brains about the size of my fist. The nutritional requirements weren't that high. Certainly body size and brain size are directly related to how much uh, nutrition you can take in to fuel those important things. So they were eating, our ancestors at that time, just like every other wild animal that's out there, were eating foods that their body was designed to consume safely, break down, and derive nutrition from. So their guts and their diets matched one another. And they were eating literally a a limited amount of of wild fruit, a limited amount of wild vegetables, and a limited amount of insects. With all those three things, the insects were the most nutrient-dense and sort of bioavailable foods that they ate. About three and a half million years ago, something transformative happened. Uh, And it's going to sound like a little thing, but it's, it's a really big thing. They, uh, one of our ancestors, probably what we call Australopithecus afarensis, struck together two rocks and a sharp, literally knife fell off the other side, this flake, this razor sharp edge that's, you know, incredibly durable, incredibly sharp. And, and that moment when that happened transformed our relationship with everything of the world around us. We no longer were relying on our teeth and our nails and our, our muscles to get food and interact with the world. We now had a durable edge that was sharper than anything that our bodies produced that allowed us to actually go off and scavenge, just like the hyenas and the buzzards and things were scavenging the leftover from the kills and lions and whatnot. We, our ancestors, go out there armed with this tool and for the first time ever start eating meat. We've been eating meat now for three and a half million years. At two million years ago, we started hunting for the first time, getting the most nutrient-dense parts of the animal, and we did that. And we also were, were making fire and cooking our food. And then we started doing things like fermenting. And anyhow, every one of these steps and stages allowed us to access food from our environment that was better, right? More, you know, more nutritious, more packed full of calories and protein and fat and all the things we needed. And most importantly, allowed us to process that food before it went into our bodies. We are not designed to jump on an animal and rip it apart on a carcass, but our bodies were built on animals and our diets for three and a half million years. We are not designed as uh, most of us as adults are not designed to eat uh, safely consumed dairy, but we are as kids. We are as infants. In fact, every mammal is. 
And there are things that we can, we can talk much more about this later, but there's things that we can do outside of our bodies. Our, our digestive tracts right now is most of us as adults can't safely derive the maximum amount of nutrition from the dairy, but we can replicate what we did as infants outside of our body before we eat it and do exactly that. Most of us have difficulty at some level with grains, but we can actually uh, still, um, we can replicate what happens at other animals in the side of their bodies. We can do that outside of our bodies, transform it into the safest, most nourishing form possible, and then consume it. So what we've done is, you know, we, we stood upright five to seven million years ago. Our guts, believe it or not, shrank to almost half the size they should be for a similar size primate. And started creating technologies that allowed us to extract resources from our environments that we never had before that we couldn't properly deal with on our own. But then we started developing all these technologies that allowed us to make them incredibly nutritious. So the question that our ancestors weren't, weren't really asking this question, like, okay, what should I eat to be healthy? It's like, it, the question they were asking is, how can I take that thing I've never eaten before and create a technology that allows me to get it and process it and make it amazing for my body. And that's how we've literally supported all this incredible body and brain growth over millions of years. But now we're at a, so food processing in the past was focused on increasing safety, nutrient density, and bioavailability in our foods. Food processing today does the exact opposite. Food processing today is focused on storage and shelf life and mass production and uniformity and all those other sorts of things that the modern food industry is making money on and quite often at the expense of the safety and the nutrients. In fact, it's so bad, this is gonna sound strange, but it's, gonna, it's so bad that you know, most of us today, when we think about, or if we really think about what we want out of our diets, if we really, really think about it, I mean, we wanna be lean, we wanna look good, we wanna feel good. But at another level, we really, modern Americans wanna eat all day and not get fat. I mean, we, we love, eating is such a social practice. We wanna sit there and munch on this and then watch a football game and eat this and hang out at a bar and drink this and eat this and hang out with our friends and have this meal. So we, we wanna eat all day and not get fat. So at some level, our conscious has changed from you know, what it's been for millions of years. How can I get the most amount of quality nutrition into my body with the least amount of work possible? to now it's how can I eat nutrient-free food so I can eat all day long and then pay money to go to a gym to work out to like burn off more calories. It's literally the exact opposite. And at some level, it makes sense in our minds, but it's wrong. Like it doesn't work. We have, we have an obesity epidemic now that has never been before seen in, modern, in, in any time in our past. And the other crazy thing is this, sort of the driving home. Obesity is incredibly difficult to achieve. Like other animals don't achieve it. Our domesticated animals do because we screwed up their diets, but our wild animals have an incredibly difficult time achieving obesity. Our modern food industry has failed us enough that we can very easily achieve obesity. It's like the common part now. But what's even worse, I and I think what makes Oreos and you're there. <laughs> absolutely. But here's where it's even worse. The modern food industry now is such a complete failure. And this is, I think this is profound, that you can create, it, or it has created, in the same individual, obesity and malnutrition. In other words, it's producing food that is so free of nutrients that you can eat enough food to become obese, but you're still not getting the nutrients you need to fuel your body. That's how bad it is. So we need to completely reshift, reshift our, our, our mindsets.
Wow. Yeah, that's insane. And I always relate it to, I mean, I always get, or I used to get questions because I was a fitness coach a while back, mm-hmm. but, um, but I also competed for a show and we would do the, me and my friends would do the, if it fits your macros diet, which is just, Hey, eat as much junk food as possible while still keeping lean. And, and, you know, have, if you want pizza, like that's all you can eat all day is two slices of pizza. So it fits your macros and like, and only have this many cookies. So it fits your macros, but that's all you can eat all day. And it was like, it was like this thing where everyone just thought it was the coolest thing because you were still able to have your abs and, and eat drunk. But at the same time, like you're not nourished and you right. brain fog and then you feel like shit and you get emotional and you, you know, there are all these, you know, repercussions of that, that people don't think about. And it's like, why isn't that the main thought? Like to nourish yourself? Why is food all of a sudden, like you're saying, it's no longer about the nourishment. It's about, you know, how can I stuff my face, but still look good. And right. at the same time, like, you know, depression has gone up, like mental, mental um, diseases have increased. It's just like, I, I always tie everything back to food. And that's what I wanted to ask you about too. Like what foods do you think are best um, for, cause I know there's a lot of guys listening who want to feel better mentally and want to have more clarity and focus um, in their day to day. Like what foods are best for that? And maybe sleep as well. Like, what do you think? Do you have certain foods that are good for certain things? <laughs> That's a great question. So let me uh, let me preface this by making an analogy. I hope it's an appropriate analogy. But um, you know, I mentioned before, uh, other animals don't ask what they should be eating, right? Um, and the, and the, the reason I say that is because we had it, there, there's two things that we need. One thing really that every every species on the planet has to do: plant or animal. Our our job essentially is to reproduce. Vi- with vi- viable offspring that then reproduce viable offspring and, and that continues and if that continues then species survive and if that there's a breakdown somewhere in there you become extinct right i mean we've seen this over billions of years so you know this translates into food and food choices very easily because evolution you know the triggers of uh, and evolutionary pressures have um been working and changing and morphing over millions of years and through the development of all species to ensure that that happens, right? That you're reproducing viable offspring and they live to do the same thing, which means there's two things that you need to do to make sure that happens. One is have sex and two is nourish yourself so that you can perform that properly. And then females of any species can, um, you know, ensure that, they uh, give birth and then are able to let, you know, support that baby until it's old enough to do it on its own. So those are the, the two things, like sex and food. And that's why um, evolution has, that's why both of those acts are so incredibly um, sensual in, in, in terms of, you know, it's literally an entire body experience doing those things. And, and when you do it right, both of them, they should feel absolutely amazing. And they should trigger all of your senses and all these feelings and all the, all the, and that, that's true, right? So um, with food, how do I say this in the, in the right way? We, we, we've, we've somehow screwed it all up and are suggesting for some reason we truly believe, and I bet you most people listening truly believe that if they're going to get themselves in shape, the process is going to suck. Like they're going to put themselves through hell to get in shape. They should feel hungry or they should feel like they're going without or they should feel some sort of pain at some level. No, 
like in what world does that make sense? Like it makes sense in a world for somebody trying to sell you a diet plan. It makes sense in a world where somebody's trying to sell you a gym membership. But in reality, all that you need to do is listen to your body, listen to all those evolution, you'll pay attention to those evolutionary signals that are trying to get you in the best shape of your life for the right reasons. And you should be able to do it on your own. Now, I say that in order to do that properly, two things have to happen. One is you need to be in tune with your body. And number two, you need to be presented with real food. And I'm convinced if those two things are, uh, are working together, that you don't need to ask anybody what you should eat. If you're, if you're in tune with your body and you're presented with real food, you should be able to listen to your body and say, I need to eat this. I need this today. I shouldn't eat any more of that. I'm full. You know, I don't need to eat any more, whatever. So is it possible to be in tune with your body if you're on a horrible diet plan? That's, that's the hard part. So, you know, one of the things in order to get to that place, and this is, you know, there's two things that I advocate all the time. One is find a way. I don't care what it takes to eat a truly, and we can talk about what this means, but a truly nourishing meal. So, so many people have never had a 100% completely nourishing meal that they don't have any sort of gauge to bounce, you know, uh, all the other things that they're eating up uh, against. They don't know what it feels like to fully, you know, eat the best meal possible in the right amounts at the right time and all that. And the second thing is that you and I and I would love to talk more about this. We need to get back into the kitchen and realize how food is is really made because if if the processing of the food, the production of the food is so key to all of this, then the answers lie in your kitchen, not in a documentary, not in a in a recipe book, not in a diet plan somewhere. It's you with your hands using your nose and your mouth and your ears and all your senses creating food is how you educate yourself. Then here's the thing. Every time, and this is, should be a goal of everybody. Every single, and I don't know if you're, if you're, you know, you're intermittent fasting or eating six small meals, whatever it is. Every single time that you sit down to the table, you should sit down to a nourishing meal. And every single time that you get up, and this, is, this makes such sense, but it's going to sound so strange. Every time that you get up from a meal, you should feel better than when you sat down. Like, period. Like, you shouldn't feel hungry. You shouldn't feel so full that you have to let two loops out on your belt. You shouldn't have to run to the bathroom. You shouldn't feel nauseous. You should feel better. I mean, after all, you're nourishing yourself. That's what it's all about. And if you're doing these things, if you're eating real food and you're paying attention to your body and you're getting up from the table feeling better than when you sat down, which again makes complete sense, you can put away the calculator for the calories and the fat and the scale and all that stuff. Your body will transform. And you know what? Like we mentioned, all the other things will too. Your mood, your, your, your pain, all those things will literally transform because you're living your best life. And I, so I know that was a sort of a roundabout way to answer your question. So here's the first thing we need to do as far as nourishing things go. Number one, um, fat, we need to take a, a, a second look at fat. Thankfully, the world is starting to change around this. We've been, um, you know, there's been this war on fat for the past 40 years, and they call it the oiling of America. Um, you, you know, I come, when I try to answer questions about what I should be eating and how I should be eating, I always look to the past. And I look to the past like the past 50 years. I look to the past like the past 50,000 years, right? Mm -hmm. um, animal fats have been in our diets for, we know for sure, at least 3.4 million years. 3.4 million years we've been eating animal fats in the form of marrow, 
um, uh, bone grease, visceral fat, all those things. Nut and seed oils have been in our diets for about 125 years. So 3.4 million years to 125 years. There's a, and when you look at the past 40 years of where animal fats have been demonized and they've been replaced with canola oil, soybean oil, whatever oils, uh, sunflower oil, um, it, it, obesity hasn't dropped. Obesity's actually skyrocketed. Coronary heart disease has skyrocketed. So um, many people, including myself, think that one of the first changes that we should make for ourselves and even more importantly for our kids is to get all nut and seed oils out of our house, like period, take them, throw them away. And I'm not somebody who wastes food at all, but that's not food, nut and seed oils. Uh, so when I say nut and seed oils, I mean, uh, again, vegetable oils like corn oils, for example, um, sunflower oils, all, all of them, um, you know, all the basic, I can't even listen to them because I haven't had them in my house in forever. They started cottonseed oil, they, you know, started with cottonseed oil where you're, they took cottonseed oil. It was a byproduct of the cotton industry. They were using it to lubricate machines for decades until somebody had the brilliant idea, brilliant, of trying to find a way to make it. They had to deodorize it and change its flavor in order to get it and change its color to get it in people to even think about putting it in their mouths. No. So not now I say that. Um, Fruit oils are completely different. So olive oil and avocado oils are not nut or seed oils. They are fruit oils. So that you're pressing the actual flesh of the fruit to extract the oil. And it's very low pressure, very low temperature. You don't need a ton of chemicals to do it, at least for extra virgin olive oil. So those oils we have in our house. The only nut oil we have in our house is coconut oil. But again, it gives up its fat so easily that it's not put under such high temperature and pressure in order to extract it. But I don't cook with any of those. All of our cooking is done with animal fats. So everything from real butter to lard and tallow and schmaltz and, you know, all, all of that, that is 100% what we cook with for our food. And I mean, from a, a, an omelet in a pan to deep fat frying on our counter, that's exactly what we use. So the first, say so that, if we trans say that butter is better than cooking with um, olive oil. Because I heard that if you heat up olive oil, it yeah. loses the nutrients or it's not as good for you. Like, is that true? Yes. So we use olive oil. We rarely, there's a couple of instances under low temperatures that we cook with olive oil, but olive oil is great for things like dressings or, or, or mayonnaises or whatever, or to just drizzle on stuff. Fantastic. But vegetable oils have a really low uh, temperature that they start to break down. So when we cook with them, and if anybody's, I mean, I'm sure many of us, I used to have a wok in college, you know, like a Chinese wok-like thing, and I was cooking in vegetable oils with it, and it would start to get this, it looked like a varnish on the, um, on the inside that I could never get off. And what that is, is that oil breaking down at high, temp high temperatures is just completely transforming into this terrible, literally toxic substance, and that's exactly what that is. Um, so yeah, so we don't cook with olive oil. We cook with butter. Butter's butter is an amazing food. Butter butter's been around for at least six thousand years. Um, the way we have it today is in a slightly different form, but even just just high quality butter is just we should eat massive massive quantity. And I know it sounds strange, like again, <laughs> we should we're fat and fat. But the other the other issue is what's I don't a, know, do you know a brand like what's a what's a great yeah. butter for us to go out and buy? Because I know there's some that probably aren't that great. Typically, European butters, now they're a little more expensive. 
um, but uh, Polgro's one, um, uh, uh, shoot, the Irish one, I love, it. I don't know why it's, um, uh, Kerry Gold is, is, is another. These are high quality butters, typically from grass fed animals, um, which, which helps. And especially the ones, if you see something that says cultured butter on it, that means the butter has been through, the cream has been through a fermentation process. Now, all butter for 6,000 years was actually fermented. It was a fermented food. Um, what most of the butter we have today is uh, what we call sweet cream butter. So the way it used to work is this. Your family would have a cow or a couple cows. And you go milk the cow. And you didn't have any refrigeration. I mean, I'm talking thousands of years ago. So you'd milk the cows and you'd get some milk and you'd bring it into the house. And you'd let it sit for several hours. And you know that it's not homogenized. So the, the, the milk fat, would the cream would rise to the top and skim off that cream and put it in another container. Now, since you only had a few animals, that little bit of cream you skimmed off the top wasn't enough to make it worth your time and effort to turn that into butter. So you set it aside and, and then you use the rest of the milk for something else. And then you go and milk the cows again and bring it in. Same thing, you'd skim that off and add that cream to the original pot and do that day after day after day after day. And then by the end of the week or so, you'd have enough cream that it made sense to turn it into butter. That entirety of time, from day one to the time you churn that butter, that cream has been fermenting. Milk comes out of an animal, whether it's a human breast to a cow, it comes out fermenting. It's full of incredible you know, bacteria that are, are literally already working. So that, that cream, that raw cream just sitting there in the corner of the room is sitting there fermenting the entire time. And during that, uh, because of that fermentation process, it's chemically and physically transforming that cream into something different. And in fact, in many ways, it's replicating what we would have been doing in our stomachs had we drank that, that, that milk from our mothers. And then when you churn it, it has fermented butter. Um, again, it's chemically and physically better for our bodies anyhow, but it also has an enhanced flavor profile. It stores longer. Um, it's easy. It has a higher, uh, higher yield of butter fat. It's just a win-win all the way around. Um, most of the butter we get today is what we call sweet cream butter which means they, they take the cream and immediately churn it. And it's never been through the fermentation. In fact, they're typically churning pasteurized cream, which is completely dead. And the good part about it is you're still getting butter fat, which is, especially if it's from a grass-fed cow, it's wonderful, wonderful nutrients, but it's, it's not that fermented. So to answer your question uh, more directly, Kerrygold is not fermented, but it's from grass-fed cows. Um, European butters, I think it's, I forget the name. Uh, there's European butters that say uh, cultured butter or fermented butter. Those are ideal. But anything with a high butter fat content is much better than vegetable oils. Or and, and don't and don't go for the blends. Be careful because even even Land O'Lakes will do this sort of oh we're blending it with canola oil or we're blending it with something. Don't. There's no reason to blend. There's no pure fat is perfect. Wow, that's a good wake up call. Eat your butter. <laughs> Eat your butter and eat massive amounts of it. No, it, it, you know, I, I don't, I didn't like the, um, I forget who the celebrity chef was, this, uh, the Southern, whatever, I forget her name. And she would, would boast about, you know, oh, eat your butter as it was sort of a, uh, you know, just because you should be gorging yourself and, you know, sort of this hedonistic, like whatever. And I, I hated the message. I agreed with eat the butter, but the message was don't worry about your health. You know, butter's terrible for you, but we're eating massive amounts of it because it tastes good and we should just have all this pleasure. Um, no, eat butter because it's incredibly good for you. 
Yeah. Yeah. You're all about nourishment, which I love. What other, foods, what other foods are, or are there any other foods that people sure. aren't aware are good for them? Like the, like the butter yeah. example or yeah. Sure. So a couple things, and this might take a minute for people to bear with me, everybody listening, because you know, forget everything you know about food for a minute and, and, and hear me out. Um, yeah. Organs are incredible, awful, are incredible for a lot of different reasons. First off, uh, when we think about eating animals, we almost always think about meat. That's the default because that's what we see in the grocery stores. And there's a lot of historical reasons why that's the only part. And there's a lot of economic reasons why that's the only part of the animals that show up in the grocery stores. But liver, heart, spleen, uh, you know, uh, different types of fat, blood, all those things are literally the most incredibly nutrient-dense parts of the animal. In fact, those are the parts of the animal, believe it or not, that made us human. We started eating meat, started eating meat three and a half million years ago uh, because we were scavenging the kills left over from predators on the savanna. Like the ancestors to modern day lions would do what lions do today. They, 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 they take an animal down, they rip it apart, they dive inside and eat the organs, the blood and the fat and gorge themselves and then go off and sleep for a little bit. And that gives us slight window of time where buzzards and hyenas and things, including our ancestors with stone tools, could run in and hack off what was left. They were leaving the meat behind. That's what we would get. When we do that, not much changes. Like our bodies don't grow much. Our brains don't grow much for a million and a half years of that until we start hunting. When we start hunting, we reach almost modern proportions in body size and brain size. And the difference between scavenging and hunting is that when you're scavenging, you get the leftover bits. In that case, that was the meat. When we start hunting, we have first access to the entire animal and we are the predators. So we can eat the organs, the blood and the fat. And those are the parts of the animal that provided us with the nutrients to support these and to support the growth of these massive bodies and, and brains. So it's, it's funny, the way we think about meat today, we've like stepped too far back in time, like way too far back to when we were smaller with smaller brains. It's, it's not about the meat. Meat's incredible, don't get me wrong. But the other parts of the animal, again, liver is a great example, is just so much more nutritious than, than the meat. And I know it's not in many of our conscious because we either haven't eaten it in our diets or if we did, it was like our grandmother cooking you know, liver and onions, way too dry. It stunk up the house because they did it wrong and they forced it down on Sunday night dinners as a family because our parents made us do it. No, like it is when cooked properly, absolutely incredible and satiating. You get up from that, from that table and feel great. But the other, the other cool part about it is we modern Americans eat, you know, in modern American grocery stores, 50% approximately of a cow and 55% of a pig by weight make it to the grocery stores, which means almost half of that animal that could have provided us nutrition is either thrown away, used as fertilizer, or used for a bunch of different purposes, not on our plates. What's that? Why? Why? Because uh, several reasons. Uh, one is because, and again, there's, I mentioned earlier, there were some historical reasons. A lot of it dates back to when we were um, starting to create large uh, animal processing centers in areas like St. Louis and, 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 you know, pockets around the world. Um, and it was at a time when we didn't really have refrigerated rail cars or we're just starting to do that. So we were trying to ship animals and animal parts and it was meat stores really easily 
compared to things like organs. So uh, we started taking that literally off the menu and, and just shipping things like meat. And it slowly started to fall away from our conscious. And then, you know, the late 1800s, early 1900s was a time of huge um, immigrant influx into this country, bringing their traditional diets, which always included all these different parts. It included animal fats, it included liver, included all this other awful. And, you know, they're coming in and we have, you know, uh, richer, um, richer part, segments of the population that are touting, I'm eating T-bone steaks and I'm eating lo- sirloin and I'm eating this and I'm eating this. And, you know, these immigrant populations coming in are looking, I want to I live like that. You know, I want to live at the top of the hill. At the top of the, and, you know, they were striving to literally get, we, we were almost in many ways forcing them to shed themselves of these incredible, you know, nourishing uh, traditional diets from wherever they came from and to adopt this, you know, what we, what we have today. And then this just continues and continues. And unless you are in a, an amazing, like high-end restaurant, like super rich and in like one of the best restaurants in the world, which has all sorts of these things on their menu, it would have spleen and liver and all sorts of other stuff, or you're in a, a part of the population where you have to rely on, you know, incredible cheap cuts of animals, right? Because of economic reasons, you would be eating these things. But the average middle class don't have organ meats in their conscience. They don't get it in their grocery stores. They don't think about it on their dining tables. And by eating those foods, several things happen. One is you are eating the most nutritious part of the animal, but you're also um, helping with a lot of the uh, sustainable sustainability and ethical initiatives that people are working towards now. I mean, it doesn't sit right with me to kill an animal and eat half of it and throw the rest of it away, but to kill an animal and to make complete use of it and to nourish my family with it makes complete sense. It sits really, really, you know, certainly really well with me. So another superfood, if you ask me, would be uh, organ meats. Um, And again, start with something simple like chicken liver pate, Super simple to make, incredibly nourishing, and you actually can get chicken livers at places like Whole Foods. Um, the other favorite organ. What's that? Is that your favorite organ? Yeah, I, I, liver in general, but yeah, chicken chicken liver is wonderful. Wow. The other food I would love to say something about quickly: two foods really. Um, one is just fermented foods in general, fermented vegetables. Um, you know, vegetables, we have this misconception that vegetables are these, um, uh, are like, for some reason we think vegetables are put on this planet to feed us. No, plants are on this, in, on this, in this earth doing the same thing we're trying to do, reproduce viable offspring that reproduced. And they're literally waging, plants are waging a war um, against the rest of the outside world trying to survive. Now, all the animals in the world run around and have claws and muscles and can jump on things and fight them off, but plants can't move. So plants are actually waging chemical warfare. They, they, they interact with the outside world by producing chemicals and every single plant on the planet has some level of toxin in it. Now, some of the, many of them are, are fine. Many of them are benign. Many of them build up in our bodies over time. And some of them can actually make us very sick and, and, and actually kill us. Even foods in our grocery store. So this idea, I used to have this idea, I'd walk into the um, um, produce section of the grocery store and I'd look around and say, okay, I want to get healthy. This is the part of the grocery store where I should be to be as healthy as possible. Some of this is good, more of it's better. And I just load without thinking, I turn off my brain and load the cart with all these vegetables. And it turns out 
that some of them eat in the wrong way or not processed properly, at minimum, don't allow us to access all the nutrients they can provide. At maximum, can make us very, very sick. Things like oxalate and spinach can build up over time and, and wreak havoc. And if anybody listening to this is experiencing um, uh, joint pain or unrelated, uh, undiagnosed pains in their bodies, uh, one thing I would suggest, we don't have probably time to get into it, but one thing I would suggest looking into are oxalates, plant oxalates that are like these little tiny shards of glass under a microscope that build up in our bodies over time and um, can often get misdiagnosed as gout, um, rheumatoid arthritis, all sorts, of, uh, all sorts of issues. And they're in foods that we just without thinking consider healthy. Things like spinach or Swiss chard or kale have max, massive amounts of oxalates. Almonds have massive amounts of oxalates. So I bring that up because plants, and we eat plants in our house, we eat lots of plants, but we don't just eat plants without thinking about them. Just like anything else, you need to realize that vegetables have incredible nutrients, but they don't give up their nutrients very easily to our, to our digestive tracts. We need to do things to them. And fermentation is one of the ways to unlock these nutrients in really powerful, powerful ways. So if you took a head of cabbage and put it on the table and, and cut it up and ate it, or you had that same cabbage that had fermented for say two weeks in a, um, with salt you know, in a jar here and you're eating, you know, finished wild live probiotic um, rich sauerkraut, your, your body's experiencing two completely different things and getting completely different nutrients and amounts of nutrients in them. You know, for example, we have this, this idea that when we put, we have this idea that our digestive tracts are um, inside of our bodies and they're not, they're a tunnel, right? That starts here and comes out the other end, starts in our mouth and comes out the other end. And the only thing you can guarantee by putting something in your mouth is that it can come out the other end. In order, it doesn't go into your body. It has to, your body has to be healthy. The food has to be in the right state for the nutrients that are in the foods that you're eating to um, be broken down properly and to be absorbed by your body and to go where they need to go to fuel your body. So I call it the can of soup effect. You pick up, if you pick up a label of food, like a can of soup, and turn it around and look at you know, this much calories, fat, protein, whatever, um, we have the ideas in our head that, okay, if I eat that, that's what my body gets. And that is not true. That's what you're putting into your mouth. But the food has to be in the right state for you to get all the nutrients that it can, that it can provide. Here's a great example. Um, corn. Everybody is listening to this is eating corn on the cob at a picnic, right? You've eaten corn on the cob and quite often it's overboiled. So it's even over sort of processed. Um, and we've eaten it and every single person, whether you want to admit it or not, has seen corn in the toilet the next morning, like whole pieces of corn. Um, and we laugh about it or don't talk about it. Actually, I don't think many people talk about it, but me, but anyhow. <laughs> so uh, what does that mean? I mean, that means that we ate that food and it didn't change at all and came out the other end. Like that kernel of corn that you see the next day delivered absolutely no nutrition to your body. Now, this is, um, and, and quite often, again, that's over, it, it speaks to several things. We didn't process the corn right and you didn't chew it up either. But um, at a sort of more microscopic scale, uh, corn is the most difficult grain in the world for our bodies to fully get all the nutrition from our human bodies to, to get all the nutrition from. And even if you 
baked it or fried it or ground it up and cooked it in the cornbread or whatever you did to it, except for one thing. Um, even though you don't see it the next day in the toilet, there are nutrients that are passing directly through your body that that corn contained that never make it to the right place in your body. The only way to properly process corn or maize um, to derive the max, to release the maximum amount of nutrients for our human bodies is through a process called nishtamalization. And that's an ancient um, uh, Aztec word that means you're taking the dried kernels of, of corn soaking them in an alkaline solution. It used to be water and wood ash, but now what they use lye and, and pickling lime or other things. Um, and then the next day you grind it in the masa and then you can make things like tortillas or tamales or other, other things out of it. So real genuine, I don't mean the ones you get at the grocery store, real genuine tortillas and tamales and uh, arapas and, and atoles and all these other sorts of things that are made properly are the only way for our body to derive the maximum amount of nutrition from something like corn or maize. Um, and just as I know we got off on a tangent, but just to show you the, how important this is, um, I'd love to dive into this, but I know we don't, I know we don't have time, but corn maize is responsible for being the food that built empires. Aztecs are a great example, right? The Incas, I mean, people, maize was like the staple of the diets. However, Beginning 500 years ago, when colonists first came to America, found maize, and then brought it back to Europe without bringing back the processing, the ancient form of processing went with it, um, maize has been responsible over the past 500 years. Literally, maize has been responsible for the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people and, the, um, and sickening millions from Italy to Spain to uh, Eastern Europe to Ireland and even to the Americas in the early 20th century. And the reason is because when maize, and it's just, I like to tell a story because it shows the power of the processing over the food. Um, maize, when maize comes into a diet, it's, it tastes great. Maize, when I say maize, I mean corn. Uh, it tastes great. It's easy to grow. It's easy to store. It's easy to process. It's incredibly cheap. So when it comes into a diet, it becomes, in many cases, especially in impoverished areas or areas in need, it becomes the staple food. In some cases, it becomes the only food that people eat. Um, and even though before they might have been hungry, they were getting little bits of food from different places and, and nutrients from different sources. But when maize comes in, it dominates. And what follows in the wake of maize being introduced in all these other countries around the world is a disease called pellagra. It's first identified in Italy and then later in Spain, then Eastern, um, uh, then Eastern Europe, and then you see it at the end of the Irish potato famine um, in the 1800s in Ireland, and then we see it in the early 20th century in the American Southeast in states like Georgia and Alabama and the Carolinas. And what happens is pellagra is a nutrient deficiency of niacin in the diet. So it, it presents as uh, originally as red, you know, rashy skin, and then these lesions that look a little bit like leprosy, and then eventually blindness and of untreated death. And here's the funniest part, funny, ironic part of the whole thing. Like this is a disease that again, killed hundreds of thousands of people, sickened millions. And in every case, it was in areas that were eating massive amounts of corn. So People were getting sick and dying from eating massive amounts of a food. And they were getting sick and dying because of a nutrient deficiency of niacin in their diet. But they were eating massive amounts of a food that contained massive amounts of niacin. So they were actually 
eating massive amounts of maize, getting that had niacin, and the niacin was passing directly through their bodies because we couldn't access it with our weak digestive tracts, and you're getting sick and dying. So, but this was never a problem prehistorically because they were processing the food properly. Today, it is still a problem in certain countries in the world, especially in Africa, where maize has come in as a as a staple food, and um, people aren't processing it the right way. It is the most widely grown grain in the world. And, it, and in most cases, we are not maximizing the nutrient value of that corn when we eat it. We're still you know, passing one of the nutrients directly through our bodies. So and then finally, the last answer to your question about incredible foods. I am not saying this to suggest that people who don't eat bread should start eating bread. But people that do eat bread or find pleasure in eating bread um, should understand the you know the the value of processing in our food cannot be understated. And we unfortunately most of the conversations we have around food today are focused on on words, uh, categories of food that are actually meaningless because there's different ways to create those foods. So for example, we say something like cheese. Well. Cheese could mean Velveeta cheese and whiz cheese in a, in a jar or like an incredible, um, you know, raw milk fermented cheese from Italy or Spain, all fall under the category cheese. And we have conversations around whether humans should be eating cheese or is cheese healthy. Same thing with bread. So the earliest example of bread in the archaeological record is 14,400 years old. The entirety of the time up until the mid 1800s that bread was being made, it was being made using a slow, wild fermentation process that included both bacteria and yeast. They were literally making sourdough bread. Today, um, we've, we've, we've um, uh, isolated certain strains of yeast. We commercially produce that yeast, and most of the bread, bread produced today commercially is made using just yeast. Um, so everything from Wonder Bread to sliced pan or sandwich bread or whatever, whatever you're getting. Um, but there are some people still making sourdough bread. Sourdough bread is a completely different food than almost any other bread you can have access to. Real sourdough bread. So um, just to talk about the power of the processing, the yeast in, in bread making, you introduce yeast right to it, to the system, and yeast eats the starches or the sugars, produces carbon dioxide and alcohol. The alcohol gets burned off when you bake the bread, but the carbon dioxide is what makes the bread rise and gives it its fluffiness and the holes in the bread and all that. And that's great. Um, so whether you're doing a sourdough bread or a commercial yeasted bread, you have that yeast fermentation happening. The difference with sourdough bread is that in addition to the yeast fermentation, you also have a bacterial fermentation. So there's lactobacillus bacteria that are eating the starches and the sugars and, and chemically and physically transforming the grains in that bread into their safest and most nourishing forms possible for our human bodies. So by the time you're done, if I made one loaf of bread with the exact same ingredients and just put yeast in it, or a loaf of real genuine sourdough bread, they might look the same, but they're completely different experiences for our bodies. And they're completely different foods. So again, I'm not going to suggest that if you're not eating bread to start eating bread, but if you are eating bread, if you seek out, either make yourself or seek out genuine, long-fermented, wild sourdough bread, it is a completely different food for your body. Wow. Put some butter on it. And put a lot of butter on it. And real quick, one last quick thing for, for the sourdough bread. Don't just look at labels. There's no, there's no um, uh, 
FDA regulation for labeling something sourdough. So if you go to a bakery, that, so if you make it yourself, that's the best. And if you have no idea how to make sourdough bread, um, we have a bunch of resources on my website. We, have, we, we were just launching this week sourdough bread classes, uh, virtual and in person. So there's a lot of different ways to make it yourself. But if you're going to buy it, know your baker. Ask them if it's real sourdough bread. Go to a small bakery. In almost every single case, regular grocery store, they will have something that says sourdough. And in almost every single case, it's not sourdough. Turn over the label and look on the back. If it says anything acidic on the back, if it says acetic acid or lactic acid or vinegar or anything at all that suggests something acidic, they're not putting it through the sourdough process. They're, they're artificially adding something in to give it a slightly sourdough flavor. And again, because it has that flavor doesn't mean it's the same food. Wow. Thank you for that. Oh, this is so interesting. Do you have a half hour to play with? Absolutely. Sure. Yep. All right. I want to go to um, when you were talking about processing and talking about corn. First of all, do you recommend we don't eat corn or is there a way where we can better process our foods? Because I know you talk about eating food at the right time. Like, what do you mean by that exactly? Oh, well, let me, those are two different questions. Let me ask the the corn part first. So the the corn part, um, no, I'm not suggesting we don't eat corn. Um, I'm suggesting we we recognize that um, the way we eat the corn and the way it's been processed influences what we get out of that corn. So we need to realize if we're not putting it through that nishtamalization process or eating it after it's been through that process, we're not getting all the nutrients. So there's a lot of reasons to eat. Some of them are are for pleasure, right? Some of them are for whatever. So um, recognize that. And if corn is a major part of your diet, then I would take a really good look at, again, the nishtamalization process. It's very easy to do at home. In fact, you can do it with ingredients you can buy at Walmart. Pickling lime is the same thing as, as the calcium hydroxide to go through the process and make, you can do, do the entire thing in your house See, or seek out real, genuine tortillas. And if you're anywhere near a city, you probably have a restaurant that's doing it right. I know there's a couple that have popped up in DC lately. There's some outside of you know, places like New York or LA or inside of that, that are doing wonderful things. Um, but again, all these things, all the processing I'm talking about that makes food as safe and nourishing as possible, you know, almost all of them are thousands or tens of hundreds of thousands of years old. I mean, people were doing these things in caves with stone tools and sticks and clay pots. So there's nobody listening to us that has a less well-equipped kitchen than one of our ancestors hundreds of thousands of years ago. In fact, um, if you're eating a food that you can't make in your kitchen, then I would question whether or not it's a food that should go into your body, right? If, if you need somebody with a lab coat and chemicals and high dollar machines, then it's probably something you shouldn't, shouldn't be eating anyhow. Um, so I'm, I'm suggesting that if you're eating corn, recognize that if it's not being mistamalized, you're eating that corn for a reason other than full nourishment. That's number one which is fine, um, or, and or either learn how to nishtamalize yourself at home, super simple to do, and again, we have a bunch of resources uh, for that, or find somebody that's making it for real. And, you know, making it for real and authentically doesn't mean buying dried masa flour from the grocery store or the gas station and just mixing it up with water and, and making that. That, again, is not uh, the same food making it genuinely from, from scratch. Um, the set, so the, the other question is about timing. Yeah, there's a, lot of, um, there's a lot of studies that have been done recently that when you eat 
is the, uh, greatly impacts not only um, weight loss and weight gain and um, your ability to be satiated and full with, with meals, uh, but also your overall health and obesity and all those sorts of things, blood sugar levels. So, um, you know, I've spent a lot of time, my family and I have done a lot of work living with and working with indigenous groups around the world. And one thing that we've, we've noticed is that the, this, this is how most of them eat. And tell me if this, this sounds familiar to you. Uh, most of them get up in the morning and go directly to do whatever it is they're doing. If they're hunter-gatherers, they're out foraging and hunting. If they're you know, farmers, they're out farming. If they're raising insects or overraising, whatever they're doing, they're, they're out doing their thing. And uh, sometime later in the day, around noon, early afternoon, they come back to the, to the central location of their village or their home or whatever and eat a little bit of the food that was left over from the night before. So they have something small. Then they go back out and work the rest of the day doing whatever they're doing again. It could be hunting, gathering, farming, whatever, um, until it's just about dark, till they can't do it anymore. They come in, and one or several people in that family has spent the day preparing the evening meal. And that's a big, filling, incredible meal that everybody comes together, eats that meal. There's a little bit of visiting and talking and storytelling or whatever. Then everybody goes to bed and wakes up and does the next thing. You know, that is the complete opposite of how I was brought up to eat, right? Number one, you know, I was told breakfast is the most important meal of the day. And, you know, parents were like, have a big breakfast. in trouble if they didn't feed their kids the huge breakfast. You know, and what happens when you eat a huge, especially carbohydrate-filled breakfast in the morning, you're ravished by 11 a.m. I mean, you just can't make it until lunch. And then, so you have a snack, and then you have lunch. And then you have, a, you know, that afternoon lull. So you have a pick-me-up and some other snack. And then you come home and eat dinner. And then you sit there and drink wine. until t- I mean, that, that, right? So not only was um, breakfast supposed to be the most important meal of the day and the biggest, but you're supposed to eat, you know, five, six, seven small meals a day is better than eating one or two large meals. That was literally the advice that I grew up with my whole life. It never worked for me. Um, and I would wake up every single morning like ready to like jump on anything that moved and rip it apart with my teeth. I was so hungry. Like I just woke up starving as a kid. Well, what I just described, what I, you know, what we experienced with all these traditional groups around the world is they're literally intermittent fasting. That's exactly what they're doing. They're they're you know, so for anybody who doesn't know about intermittent fasting, you know, the idea is that uh, typically you don't, there, there's you eat in a small window of time during the day and you have to change your complete mindset to see why this makes sense. Again, I was brought up with the idea, especially as an athlete that you need to fuel your body all day long. You need to keep fueling your body all day long. And you know, the, the normal state of the human body should be one that's being fed constantly so that it's fueled. And the mindset today with many people is the exact opposite. It's like, no homeostasis or in other words, you know, the normal state of the human body is one where it's not digesting food. It's just living. It's just being. It's just doing the things that we're supposed to be doing, right? So um, every time you eat food, a lot of biological processes uh, are initiated in order to digest that food properly. And a lot of things are happening inside of our bodies as we're off doing other things. So you think the, that's uh, what adds to our like um, mental distractions, would you say? Sure constantly eating and our body can't focus because it's focused on digestion? 
Absolutely. And it's, it's, it's taxing. It is mentally and biologically taxing to digest food. Now we need to do it. Don't get me wrong, but we don't need to do it 20 hours a day. Right? So the idea with, with intermittent fasting is that you maybe stop eating around eight o'clock at night and don't start eating again till the next day until like noon, like literally other than maybe water or coffee or tea or something, you don't put any food into your mouths and start those biological processes until later in the day. And I know for many of us, it seems like, whoa, there is no way. I'm telling you, we do it. And we just naturally do it. We don't eat anything until about noon. And we'll eat something small. And again, we're, we're not focused on feeding ourselves or stuffing our mouths with these nutrient-free foods. We're eating incredibly nutrient-dense, satiating foods. When I say satiating, I mean it gives you that sense of fullness. Not the after Thanksgiving, I'm overstuffed and my stomach hurts sense of fullness, that I'm satisfied. Like I'm completely satisfied sense of fullness. So we eat something small around noon, one o'clock. If we're hungry, we'll pick a little bit, but we're typically not. And then we have our largest meal of the day as a family later in the day, five, six, seven, whatever. And what we're mimicking, the more we see indigenous and traditional groups around the world and how they eat, they're literally just naturally doing the same thing. And it makes complete sense. And most of the day, I am not, my thoughts are not dominated by urges related to food. Right. And so I, I saw a post. It's great. A guy named Kean Foley from Ireland who wrote a book called Don't Eat for Winter. He's fantastic. Um, and he said the other day he ate, you know, a really nice meal and came home and had two pieces of candy. And then a couple minutes later, he finished the bag. And he said, after two pieces of candy, the choice was not mine any longer. In other words, you know, when you start eating those nutrient-free foods that have these sugar, you know, such raw sugar in them and all that, that it overtakes your senses and you, it's, it's not your decision any longer. It is your body is just reacting to these things that have been designed to trigger those evolutionary responses. And I thought that was really powerful. So, uh, you know, again, a small meal, something small around noon or so, then we eat a larger meal the rest of the day and, and that's it. And I'm telling you, I have never... Uh, again, I know I mentioned it earlier, but I've never had this sense of of um, presence and health that I feel today. Wow. Yeah, I wanted to ask you because I I have a healthy appetite. Um, I I feel like I'm in really good shape. I work out every day. And I just attribute that, like my appetite to the fact that I'm working out a lot. So I'm like, oh, I could eat more. And and I, I'm always starving at night. Like I always have to have a little cup of cereal before bed, like every night, because I'm just like, I need something. And then as soon as I wake up, it's like, I can't wait for breakfast. So now it's just making me think, am I like malnourished? Am I, or am I, is that just normal because I'm constantly active, but you're very, you look very fit and you don't do that. So like, what do you think? Oh, is- we're incredibly active. The, um, yeah, eating that late at night helps trigger your hunger in the morning. But the other thing is eating carbohydrates that late at night is probably why you're waking up so hungry. So if you had a, a something that uh, before you, so I would suggest not eating anything past say eight o'clock or whatever. But if you are going to have something, it should be an incredibly nourishing, satiating 
bit of something. So something that has a higher fat, con higher fat and protein content more than carbohydrate content is not going to produce the same sort of hunger in the morning. And uh, again, we don't, I, I used to get up in the morning and the first thought in my head was I'm hungry. What am I going to eat? And that thought doesn't enter my mind now until at least noon. Hmm. Yeah, because that's interesting for me. It's like I wake up and I get excited for breakfast because I love breakfast, but then I make it a, re a reward in a way. And I'm like, all right, let me, just let me work. And then as soon as I'm done with this, I can have breakfast. And then I have <laughs> breakfast. And then it always tends to slow me down a little bit. Not a lot. Yeah. But like after I eat, I'll eat like my go-to is like two eggs and two slices of bread and a piece of fruit or like a little bit of berries. Um, yeah. That's like my, my go-to breakfast, but I do feel a little slower afterwards and this is just kind of like blowing my mind because i'm like wow like i shouldn't feel slower and probably shouldn't no. feel right before bed because now it's triggering my hunger in the morning i i need to get back to intermittent fasting can you take me so, through, oh, no, go ahead, go ahead. can you take us through um like what's a typical diet for you because you only eat a couple times a day right so what does that look like specifically and what times you know i it, it is so typically for me we do a lot of, we're extreme in our house. So most of the animal foods that we eat are things that we've hunted or, or, um, or fished for or butchered ourselves. Um, and not all, but a lot of the vegetables that we eat are wild and foraged. Um, it doesn't have to be that way, but we, we do. And we do it for several reasons. But one is because we love the connection that that sort of a lifestyle offers. Um, and that sense of responsibility that I have to feeding my family the most nourishing food possible, you know, pushes me to start at the earliest place possible to ensure, you know, that we're a part of the whole process. So um, you can do the same thing, though, with with um, things that you buy at the grocery store, the farmer's market or the farm. But one of the things that we need to realize when we think about those categories of food that we're eating and, and I'll tell you what it is in a second. I'll answer it directly. But um, again, bread isn't bread. Cheese isn't cheese. Animal foods aren't animal foods. It depends on not only where they're coming from, but how they're processed, how they're dealt with, how they're detoxified, how, they're, how they're, uh, the nutrients are made accessible. So all that's important. And, and I, I sort of <laughs> I, I, I sort of lost my train of thought. So hold on for one minute. Um, Oh, there is a huge, just to lay the groundwork again very quickly for, before I answer the question directly, there's a huge difference between the, the vegetables and fruits that we buy at the grocery store and those that are literally in our lawns and in the woods and in the vacant lots in our towns, you know, the wild plants and the wild fruits. So as far as fruits are concerned, um, Fruits have been, and I mentioned earlier in the, in, in the podcast that fruits have been a part of our diet for millions and millions and millions of years. But the wild fruits that I'm talking about have no, uh, can't be compared to the fruits that we have in the grocery store today. You know, a banana, which many of us think are a health food, has as much sugar in it as a can of Coca-Cola does. Right. And it's not, I mean, it is so, and it's, and we think fructose is this amazing thing, but it is, it is pure, simple carbohydrates. So sure. We eat fruit in our house, some, not a ton, but fruit does have good nutrients in it. But it, the modern fruit has been so, um, 
bastardized by selective breeding to produce the largest, sweetest thing possible because that's what consumers want and that's what the you know, food industry makes the most money on, that you know, f- fruit, in my mind, should be considered a sweet. It should be considered a dessert, not the basis of a meal because you are flooding your body with simple carbohydrates. Now, again, not that we shouldn't eat them, but we should be aware of what we're eating when we're eating fruits. Berries I like a lot better than things like bananas or apples, but bananas and apples are full of sugar and they've been bred for size, uniformity, sweetness at the expense of nutrients. An apple today is doesn't something like, <laughs> no, it doesn't, is something like no. three to four times less nutrient dense than it was in 1950. In other words, our parents, when they ate an apple, the nutrients they're getting by eating one apple when they were a kid would take us four apples to provide that much nutrition to our body. At the, mean, at the same time, though, we're getting flooded with more fructose than they ever had before because, you know, we're eating, we're eating all these. So when I, when, when I say that our ancestors were eating wild fruits or we're talking about somebody foraging today eating wild fruits or hunter-gatherers like the Hadza that are eating wild fruits – that is not licensed to walk into the produce section of Acme and like fill your cart with apples and, and bananas because they are a completely different food than the wild fruits that typically have less sweetness, typically have less flesh, and typically require a lot of work to get the food you know, into our bodies compared to peeling this massive banana that doesn't look anything like what the wild bananas look like. So that's one thing. Um, and the same thing with- when you say it has the same amount of sugar in a banana as a Coca-Cola, it's not the same. Like, it's not the same thing. Like, can you explain? No, it's not that? exactly the same. So in America, Coca-Cola, it, you know, typically has a high level of corn syrup in it. And in Europe and other areas, they don't have the corn syrup in it. And it's just usually pure cane sugar or something like that. But the um, we have fooled ourselves into thinking that fructose is is healthy for us and it's not it it gives the same blood uh, or, or blood insulin spikes as as other sugars as, as other simple sugars do so um again we need to just recognize this isn't to say we shouldn't be eating fruit but if you're you know, i used to feed my kids we make a lot of yogurt in our house and ferment a lot of dairy i used to feed my kids a bowl of yogurt and i'd cover it with honey raw honey and cut up a banana and stick it in there and think that I was nourishing my kids. And you know what? It was better than what their friends were getting, but I was flooding their system with sugar. I mean, flooding it, even if it's raw honey, you know, local raw honey and a banana on that yogurt was a massive amount of, of sugar that they didn't need. Um, again, not to say we shouldn't eat those things, but when I think about anything that's sweet, I recognize that I'm putting simple carbohydrates into my body, which is very, very rare in the past, but it's easy to get now and cheap to get now. So when I make the decision to eat something that's sweet, I want to ensure that I'm getting something else with it. So in other words, instead of eating you know, plain sugar, I'd rather eat maple syrup or honey because I'm getting other wonderful things, minerals and probiotics, if it's raw honey or whatever, into my system at the same time. If it's fruit, I want to make sure that it is packed not with water and sugar, packed with other sorts of things. Berries are a great are a great choice because berries 
berries are fantastic. You know, they're packed with nutrition that comes along with the sweetness. You start eating some of these huge apples that, you know, that are, that are incredibly sweet and full of water. You're getting really water and sugar more than anything else, anything else in them. And, you know, just to real, real quick as well, we fall into this trap, I think today too, where we just say fruit is fruit. So, you know what? I, I like bananas, so I'm going to eat bananas. And you eat a banana every day, like every day. There, there's no, there is literally no indigenous group in the world that ate the same food every day, every day of the year. Like it, it doesn't make sense. We've never done that in the past, right? That, we only can do it today because there's no seasons in our grocery stores any longer because we ship food from all over the world and have greenhouses and everything else. So um, this, this guy, I mentioned him earlier, uh, Kean Foley, he wrote a book called Don't Eat for Winter. And I'll give you the quick sort of rundown of, of where that started because it's very relevant to this. He lives in Ireland down in, um, in Waterford, County Waterford, and he was, uh, it was middle of winter and he was looking out his window and there's an apple tree at his window and he's literally eating an apple and he was overweight. He was in his, I think at the time in his late thirties, um, he was quite overweight and he was um, eating this apple, looking at, thinking he's health, being healthy. He's looking out his window with this apple tree in the middle of winter in Ireland. And he's, he looks up and he's like, there are no apples on that tree. Hell, there's not even any leaves on that tree. And I'm eating this apple. Like something's wrong. And he started thinking about what his diet was like um, and thinking about what seasonality meant for, for, for eating at the different times of the year. And he realized that, you know, we, the food that's produced by plants in the late summer into the fall into the winter are perfect for getting animals ready for the winter. Like they're full of carbohydrates. They're meant, not meant, that's the wrong word, but they allow animals who eat them to put on a lot of fat and you know and, and get them ready for the winter when that when the resources are going to be low and allow them to eat but because we've taken seasons out of our grocery store um we now eat for winter all year long like we eat these incredibly high carbohydrate foods all year long so these foods that were meant to sort of fatten us up are in our diets in may and in our diets in june as well so what he did, he literally, the only thing that he did was he said, I'm going to eat seasonally. Like I'm literally just going to eat hyper seasonally. Only the foods that are available in my part of the world when they're available, not because of a greenhouse, because that's when they grow. So you know what, if I eat a bunch of apples and, and, and whatever in, and, and root vegetables and things that in, in the fall and put on a little bit of weight, I'm supposed to, but I'm not going to eat those things in, in January when they're not available or whatever. And he since has become, uh, uh, he won the Arnold. I think what did he win? He won that, uh, the international, you know, um, drug-free bodybuilding championship. He's a world kettlebell champion now. The guy is the epitome of what you think the human figure should look like, and that was a change that he made. So, you know, again, this idea that we eat bananas all year long, or we eat spinach every day of the year because we make this spinach shake, and that's supposed to make us healthy. We should rethink whether or not that's actually healthy. So, to answer your question more directly, my my diet. Um, we eat a lot of animals and we eat the entirety of the animal. You know, again, instead of the 50%, we're upwards of 80 something percent of an animal that, that we kill. We use literally all of it. Um, so, you know, we do a lot of butchering in our house, which I, I think is an incredible, and I know this sounds strange to many people like butchering. Well, we don't even have butchers in our town anymore. Well, we have to get butchers back in our town, but it's another, another story. Do, this is something that I think we should do at home regularly um 
when we start bringing whole or animals into our house, and I don't mean, you know, covered in fern feathers, well, that's fine, but a whole animal or uh, large parts of animals into our house, we bring into that house the consciousness of everyone in the house that is either participating in the act or sees it out of the corner of their eye, the consciousness that something died for us to eat. It's, it, it, that's very important. We've forgotten that. We've taken, I call it putting a face back on our, on, on our plate. We've taken that out of our conscious. So our kids that are eating chicken nuggets don't realize there was a chicken running around, you know, months or whatever earlier. Or eating a steak, don't you know, equate that necessarily with a cow that was walking around and living its life and eating grass. And we do that under this guise of convenience. Oh, I don't need to bother myself with that anymore. Let other people do that. But what used, what literally was an act that made us human, the act of hunting and butchering and using that entire animal and nourishing ourselves and our family and building these bodies and brains, that act is no longer a part of our lives anymore. And, you know, we've gotten to the place where we have these arguments, you know, the, 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 these vegan carnivore arguments back and forth, which are ridiculous on both sides. But it, somewhere in the middle is the reality that things die for us to eat. And yet animals are getting treated incredibly badly in this, country, in, in this world. I mean, these concentrated animal feedlot operations are a criminal what's happening to those animals. It's criminal that half of that animal is getting thrown away. It's criminal that we don't even realize most of us eating meat that something lived and then died and then we're, we're nourishing ourselves with it. So I, 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 bear with me. I believe strongly that we need to be bringing whole chickens into our house. We need to be bringing shoulders of pigs if not half a pig into our house the process of butchering is not bloody if there's blood in the dead animals that you're bringing home from the store or the farmer's market then somebody did something wrong when they actually killed it. there should be no blood we, we regularly slap a half a pig on the counter in the kitchen and we take that entire animal apart and i'm telling you i can get a half of a good sized pig for 135 dollars and it'll feed my family for months. And we make our bacon and we make our hams and we make our pork, you know, all those sorts of things. But most importantly, my kids know when they're sitting down and eating that sausage or eating that bacon or eating that ham, they equate that act with an entire animal and its body and the fact that it was walking around and, you know, all those sorts of things. So I say that because we have a lot, because of that, we have a lot of fat in our house. We have a lot of skin in our house. We have a lot of bones in our house. So we regularly bone broth and we render lard, do all those sorts of things. So when I eat- I hear that's like one of the best things for you, right? Bone broth. Oh, bone broth's amazing. Bone broth is amazing because, so when you, when you make it, not only are you getting the minerals that come out of the matrix of the bones themselves and the flavor, but you know, obviously those minerals, you're getting, um, uh, you're getting the gelatin and connective tissue, which people go to GNC and buy like shark cartilage or something, just make real bone broth and it's, it's in there. Um, and also what's really important is, you know, the marrow inside of those bones becomes a part of the bone, bone broth as well. And it's, it's, it's fantastic all the way around. It's a great way to use uh, certainly more of the animal, certainly more of the animal as well. So I get up, we do drink coffee in our house. Um, so we get up and drink coffee and some water, um, do whatever work we're doing for the day. Around noon, we have a snack. It is usually a high fat, high protein sort of thing. So it could be something left over from dinner the night before. It could be, um, you know, we make a lot of pepperoni and things as well. It could be sauce. It could be eggs. Um, eggs are, in my mind, one of the world's most perfect foods. Um, we eat eggs, fried in a lot of butter, obviously. Something to just get us by. And then 
the day goes on. If I'm eating something during the day, usually it's, it's, it's a bit of cheese. We like a lot of cheese. And then for dinner, it's a full meal that, again, is focused on incredibly satiating, nourishing food cooked the right way. So the animal part of that is the main dish. It's not the side dish. Uh, quite often, and almost every day, we eat some sort of vegetable that night. Often it's it's fermented, you know, things like sauerkraut or kimchi, that that sort of thing. And that's it. I mean, we we drink some red wine as well, but that's um, <laughs> that's uh, that that's tip that, that's typically what we eat. And again, I feel stronger and and healthier than I've ever felt. Wow. Yeah, and you look great. And that's just crazy to me how you know you have a little snack, have a tiny snack, and then have like a full meal, which I'm still is not, I'm sure is still not as obnoxious as most American meals. I'm sure it's very like like you said, satiated, which just means you're filling yourself with nutrients. That's all you need. You don't need huge plates. You just need nutrients. Um, so going back to, that's so awesome. Going back to how you, how your body, um, takes in the majority of nutrients. Like you said, Mm -hmm. like you look at the ingredients and you see what the nutrients are and you assume your body's going to get that. What do you do to make sure, or is there anything for the, for the guys listening, for people that don't butcher or have like that, aren't in that, you know, that place yet where they're going out to bring food in, like just grocery lifestyle. What can we do when looking at an ingredient? Um, is there anything we could do to help process more of the nutrients like specifically? So this is, this is my advice. And this is, again, I know I didn't, I haven't answered much of what you've asked directly. <laughs> I know I go around the first, but, but, bear, but bear with me for a second. This is really important and a part of the answer to your question. I think in order to do what you're talking about properly, in order to be able to go into the grocery store and pick something up, look at the back and decide whether or not it's something that you should take home and feed yourself or your family with, I think that starts first in your kitchen. And here's, here's sort of my challenge to, to everyone. And it's going to sound strange for, for a minute, but again, please bear with me. First off, real change. I mean, significant change in your diet, health, human environmental relationship, uh, sustainability. All real change doesn't happen because of that one thing a week that you eat or the one trip to Whole Foods a month or, you know, the most amazing Thanksgiving meal those are little like flashes in the pan. Like they happen, they feel good. Pat yourself on the back that you've made something great or bought something great, but you haven't you haven't made real change. The changes that you need to make in order to you know start that snowballing effect to really change your life and your health and the way you feel about yourself and the way you all those things happens with the sort of mundane things that you eat literally every single day or five times a week. So the first thing. I would suggest, and it's it's really been powerful for us, is you really think about the foods that you eat every single day um, and learn to make those foods at least once, 1,000% from scratch, like literally 1,000% from scratch. Don't listen to me talk about food. Don't listen to your nutritionist or your doctor or somebody just tell you something about food, right? You take control, I'm not saying not to listen to them, listen to them, but take control of your food choices, take control of your relationship with your food and take, and I don't care what it is. If it is, um, you know, 
tomato soup and grilled cheese, if it's a hot dog and hamburger, if it's pizza, if it's macaroni and cheese, I don't care what it is. Take that meal that you and your family eat every single day and make it 100% from scratch at least once. And I mean, strive to not have anybody but you put any two ingredients together. Make it from scratch. And even if it is horrible, and even if the dog won't even eat it, you understand that food at an entirely new level. And even if you never make it again and buy it from the grocery store or food co-op or whatever, when you walk through those doors after having made that entirely from scratch, you're walking through those doors a completely different person. You're an informed consumer like you've never been before. And you now can look at the back of that label. You can look at the front of that label. You can look at its placement in the grocery store. You can look at all of it and, 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 and discern for yourself whether or not that's a food you want to eat or if that's something you would never touch or feed your family again. Or, and on top of that, not only are you bringing home the most nourishing forms of those foods, but you're also supporting with your paycheck the people, the food manufacturers that are actually doing it right. You're voting with your paycheck, which is powerful. I mean, look at something like Walmart. They are the largest supplier of organic foods in the world right now. Walmart doesn't care if they have organic foods. They, are, they just want to supply what the, you know, the consumer wants. And we asked and we asked and we begged and we showed that the market was there for organic foods and now they're the biggest supplier of organic foods. We can change that system by literally our, you know, what's in our shopping cart every week. So um, I say that because it is difficult, especially in the short time that we have, to go through all the different things we need to look for in cheese or in bread or in, you know, whatever, cured meats, uh, the chips in the grocery store that we should have. It's powerful. It's empowering to make that food yourself, understand the different, you know, different aspects of how that food's made and then go and buy it. And it, it, truly, that, that's, that's my biggest suggestion. But in the meantime, um, you know, some sort of takeaways. Certainly, uh, there are very few foods in the world that require more than five or six ingredients to produce them. Most of most traditional foods in the world, most real nourishing foods in the world rely on the processing to change flavor and texture and nutritional quality instead of and even 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 shelf life and storability instead of adding all sorts of other you know ingredients and, and preservatives and things to it. So the pure amount of ingredients on the back of the label should be an indicator. You know, real tortillas have Real tortillas have one ingredient, nishtamalized maize. Real sourdough bread has three ingredients, flour, water, and salt. And they use a, a wild, you know, bacteria and yeast colony to, to ferment that. So the fewer the ingredients, the better. Uh, that, that's, that's certainly one thing. I know we talk a lot about it, and it's sort of cliche now, but shopping the outside of the grocery store is a lot better than shopping the inside of the grocery store. And I would stay away from foods that um, boast what they don't have in them. If the marketing on the food is what it doesn't have in it, then it's going against everything we've done for millions of years, right? And, and, and something like 80% of marketing in the grocery stores is advertising their food, is trying to sell their food by telling you what it doesn't have. Fat-free, low-calorie, you know, whatever. And, and again, I'm not saying- No sugar. Similar. It's like no sugar added. And then you look at the ingredients and it's like 60 grams of sugar. <laughs> There's just no more added. <laughs> Absolutely. And most of those, most of those things don't have a, um, a, an FDA, you know, regulation to them. 
You know, a lot of these, you know, natural food or whatever, there's no like standard that they have to meet to say that. So it's just, it's just advertising. Um, and when when you mentioned standards, I was just talking to my friend, um, and he was saying how the standards in, for instance, in Europe, like they won't even accept us meat because they won't like, and I was like, holy shit. Like I didn't realize, like, you don't, we don't realize how many chemicals and hormones and shit is like packed even in the things that we think are nourishing us and good for us that, that aren't the way you go out and find and kill it fresh. It's like, our standards are too low in this country. I was out of, no, I didn't eat there. I just, I just went there um, because I wanted to see what the inside looked like. But I was, um, I went to a McDonald's in Italy, in Calabria, in Southern Italy. And the McDonald's, you wouldn't have recognized. You walk in there and there was a, a pastry section that had it filled with Italian pastries. And then there was a section for coffee that had a huge espresso machine. And they were doing lots, they were doing real, I mean, it was because the people in Italy demanded that, you know, their standards were, were here. So, you know what? McDonald's said, fine, we'll meet those standards and come in. But our standards in this country are down here. And all these places are popping up and thinking that they're producing food and, and it's horrible. But I can't, I cannot um, uh, stress hard enough how amazing and empowering it is to get into the kitchen, get into the kitchen with your kids, but get into the kitchen and take the food that you eat every single day. If you eat a sandwich every day, then you know what? Make bread. Just learn to make bread. Try to make a loaf of sourdough bread just once. Fine. Um, if, you, if you eat salami or pepperoni every single day, I, I mean, I can't imagine a world in which you go to the doctor and you say, you know, doctors, I need to give you this shot. And you say, well, what's in it? And he can't tell you. He or she can't tell you. Aren't you going to be like, well, wait, you're not informed enough to tell me that I should be putting this literally into my body. But meanwhile, we put stuff in our bodies, stuff our faces with food that we have absolutely no idea what's in them or how they're made and, and do it over and over. And it's not like that one shot that one time. We do it literally every day, three times a day, you know, our entire lives. So learn how, if, you eat, if you eat pepperoni, if you eat a hot dog every single day, then you know what? Make a hot dog. If you feed your kids hot dog, I know that sounds so insane, but what I think is insane is that we feed our kids something that we have absolutely no idea how it's made. And we feed it to them day after day after day after day. So learn how to make it. And you know what, uh, you know, and it can be in steps, just one meal, just one meal, just start to dip your toes into it and make that meal from scratch and, and see how it goes. And again, if you never make it again, you're an informed consumer. If you're eating, if you eat a lot of meat um, in your house, then take a step towards something that is a little more nutritious and a little more ethical and a little more sustainable. So for example, if you eat chicken breast in the grocery store every day, I mean, every week, that's what you go buy, then you'll buy a whole chicken, like buy a whole chicken, bring it home, cut it up. And, and I'm, this sounds like hyperbole, but you know, you can't overstate the importance of your kids seeing something that resembled the shape of a chicken or seeing skin or, or hearing or feeling that knife cut through the, the muscle and, and scrape against some bone on the rib cage when you take the breast off or, you know, or taking the carcass that's left and seeing a skeleton and putting it into a pot and making bone broth. If you already buy a whole chicken at the grocery store, then you know what? Go to the farmer's market. Go to the farm and bring your kids. 
Let them meet the farmer. And even more importantly, let your, the farmer meet your kids. And they're producing your food. They should see the results of you know, um, you know, what, they're, what they're creating. If you're already doing all that, then it's not insane, but bring a whole chicken home. I'm sorry, a whole pig, a half a pig home. Bring a half a pig home and throw it on your counter, truly. If you're doing all those things and you know what, try to go hunting. Try to go fishing or clamming or crabbing or something. You, know, you are literally, by doing that, instilling in yourself and everybody around you this sense of connection that was crucial to creating us as humans, both biologically and culturally, it is something that is literally missing in our lives. And I'm not suggesting that you need to hunt for all your meat or forage for all your vegetables. What I am suggesting is every now and then, you know, go fishing two times a year, you know, in the spring, pick the dandelions out of your yard, make a salad out of them. I mean, you, you, are reconnecting with something that is visceral and real in ways that are very hard to, to attain, you know, in, in modern life. Hmm. I love that. That's like, that's beautiful. And it's so, it's cool. It's cool. Cause like, we're so uneducated, like you said, and just to educate, educate yourself on, you know, one ingredient list of three things you said, most foods, most meals make up three ingredients. Like it's so easy to do. And I think we've just steered away from making food this like, side thing where it's like oh just pick up some food like that runs your whole life it runs your body it runs your functioning sure. like your brain like how you think what you're doing on a daily basis how you do it you know and i think you know for the guys listening who are feeling especially during this time in the world just overwhelmed and stress and losing sleep and you know getting really tired at certain times of day when you feel like you shouldn't be and like that mental fatigue, like it's all really coming from, or ask yourself, you know, what am I putting in my body right now? And am I taking my food and my nourishment seriously? Um, sure. And this is a great conversation to shed light on that. I'm even like, holy shit, I thought I ate healthy. <laughs> like, damn. But also it's cool because it's like, all right, I get to try, let me go try some organs or eat a, do you eat insects? Because you mentioned absolutely yes. Oh, now we, it doesn't flood our diets, <laughs> but I will say that insects were an important component of our diet for had for millions and millions of years. And whether you're you um, want to change your diet because of nutritional reasons or because of uh, sustainability reasons or whatever, insects are you know they they check all the boxes. They're incredibly uh, sustainable to grow and harvest. They are incredibly delicious and they're incredibly nutritious and they are a part of just about every indigenous diet around the world where insects live. Um, we, we, we spend a lot of time in Thailand um, with, you know, where insects are still a major component of the diets. You, you know, the mounds of different insects, whether they're ant eggs or crickets or whatever, you know, in the, in the markets, even in Bangkok, but we went out and, and we're working with a, a village in a, a, a place called Titsanulek where they grow, they're uh, weaver ant egg farmers. And these guys have, or guys, these families have um, mango plantations. This is in the middle of nowhere in Thailand. These mango plantations where they realize that these weaver ants love the mango trees and they make more money um, really growing and harvesting the weaver ant eggs than they do with the mangoes. So they've stopped mango farming and have created created a system where these weaver ant eggs just thrive. Weaver ants just thrive and they create these eggs. Oh my God. And they're delicious and so incredibly nourishing. And for many of us, we're like, oh my God, I would never eat an insect. And I'll say a couple things to that. One is if you ever look at the FDA list 
of allowable insects and insect parts in your food, you would be surprised. Like the amount of insect parts that are allowed in ketchup before there's, it's not allowed to be sold anymore would blow your minds. Uh, but the other thing is think hard about what an insect really is and what it looks like. Um, we, it, it, it blows my mind that we take certain literally insects that live in the water and put them at the top of menus at everyone else's restaurants, spend a lot of money and effort trying to capture and, and sell and create these things. Crabs and lobsters are insects in the ocean. I mean, that's literally what they are. And if you look at them and think about them and then think about something like a cockroach, for example, I mean, you can see the resemblance. One lives on land, one lives in the ocean. And we would spend a lot of money for lobster and we would sue somebody if they, it was a cockroach on our plate, right? So uh, that's one thing. They are delicious. They can provide such not only nutrition, but also pleasure in eating. It will literally blow your mind. One of my favorite foods I've ever eaten in the world, we were in... Um, we were in Hidalgo in Mexico and we ate a um, a quesadilla that had bone marrow and ant eggs inside with some Oaxacan string cheese and quesillo on the inside of this corn, nistamized maize corn tortilla. I will never forget not only the flavor of that meal, but also how I felt after. Like I just felt nourished. Right. And it was ant eggs and bone marrow and just nourished. It was amazing. So there are, if anybody's listening that is interested at all in the insect piece of this, there are literally farms in the U.S. and Canada and around the world, but these are easy to access, that are growing uh, insects for, for the purpose of human consumption. A great one is Entomo Farms, E-N-T-O-M-O, -O, out, of, out of Canada. Um, they're, they're fantastic. Uh, Jared Golden runs it. And you can get... Uh, mealworms or crickets. I don't know if he has anything else right now, but uh, you know, grown, harvested, roasted, uh, and and you can get them either ground up into a into a fine flour that you can add to baked goods, or as whole crickets that you can cook up and serve as snacks or whatever. Fantastic, yeah. Absolutely. Oh my god, I'm gonna try that. That's gonna be my next step after this podcast. <laughs> it's it's a step that's worth it. Uh, and some and some health food stores. There's a couple. Um, uh, power bar companies that are doing some things with insects, like Chapul is one one example. Oh, cool. Oh, that's great. Oh my God. All right. Well, I want to appreciate your time, but I could go on for like, <laughs> I mean, just talk for another hour because I still have so many questions. But um, if you can, well, Bill, first tell the guys where they can find you um, for more information. You have so much good information. Um, and then, yeah, and then I'm going to ask you your last question. Sure, absolutely. So uh, you can find me online at uh, eatlikeahuman.com. So www.eatlikeahuman.com is our, our new website we just launched. And on there is uh, not only a ton of information, but uh, all of the, the classes that we offer now. And we offer classes and everything from stone tool production and, and foraging and, and primitive skills to, um, you know, full-blown cooking classes, you know, making cheese, butchering animals, rendering fat, uh, sourdough bread, you know, all of it. So all that's available on the website and on social media, I'm at, at drbillschindler.com. So drbillschindler.com. Great. Thank you. And um, last question. Sure. If you, were to, if you were to die tomorrow and you had one last message to give to the world in one short 
simple explanation, uh, what would that what would that last message be? This is how people remember you. Wow, that is a hard. I mean, you should have told me this before, so I could have thought about it. Maybe that's the point, isn't it? You know, that's a great question. I would say this: the um, the human experience is amazing. We have, you know, we are the product today of millions of years of evolution, millions of years of successes, millions of years of mistakes. And what we, what it's resulted in are these incredible bodies, incredible brains, incredible potential for relationships with ourselves, with our families, with our communities, with our environment, with the world around us. And I truly believe that healing all of that, we're in a really bad place right now. We have, human health has never been so bad as it is right now. We are literally killing ourselves with the very thing that nourished us and built us as a species, the food that we eat. We are killing the planet because of the way that we eat. We are uh, crawling into to, to holes and, and mentally distancing ourselves from you know, the experience of being human because of the way that we feel or the way that we think we look at because of the way that we eat. So I'm convinced that if we can reconnect with our food, eat the way that I'm suggesting, eat like a human again, a lot of those pieces of that human experience will fall back into place. We will reconnect with literally everything that it means to be human. And the, you know, the, the, the consequences of that are far reaching and incredibly powerful. Thank you so much for your education and for, for having this mission and sharing with us today and with me. I really appreciate all that you're doing. Thank you, it was a pleasure.